Ring out the old and ring in the EU. Welcome to the first Romaniacs of 2018. You've had your escapist fun, we're here to bring you back to reality. Back up to date with all things Brexit. I'm Dorian Linsky, I'm here with two of our regular hosts. Peter Collins is our free-range Brexitologist and business brain. Happy New Year, Peter. Happy New Year to you and all listeners. Did you manage to, to uh, have any Brexit arguments over Turkey? I managed to avoid them. I, I still think we're in the place where kind of trying to have one-to-one gladiatorial contests with people who voted the other way isn't going to help us. I don't know what when that moment is going to arrive, <laughs> when it does start to help us, but it's not there yet. No, 12th of never. <laughs> Naomi Smith is a housing campaigner, a former Lib Dem parliamentary candidate, and if you're doing Veganuary... What a delightful... Vige- no, it's... Ve- it's that sounds very rude, <laughs> That's rude one. <laughs> and if you're doing Veganuary, she's on your side because she does it 12 months a year. Hi, Naomi. Happy New Year. How was your Christmas? It was lovely, thank you. All hail the nut roast. Uh, you have an interesting fact of the week for us. Yes, I do. Courtesy of the Times newspaper, who reported earlier this week that the average age of staff in the department for exiting the EU is just 31, and nearly 40% of their staff are under 40 years old. Old. This is all according to analysis of government personnel data by the Institute for Government. And DEXU staff are therefore likely to be among the most pro-Remain in any Whitehall department, which I thought was quite funny. There must be a lot of cognitive dissonance in that department. Self-saboteur. <laughs> <laughs> and this week we have a very special guest. You don't have to be a senior Liberal Democrat to appear on Romaniacs, but it helps. We had Nick Clegg for our penultimate show of last year, and today we're joined by Sir Vince Cable, leader of the Liberal Democrats, MP for Twickenham, keen ballroom dancer and the only leader of a major political party standing on an anti-Brexit platform. Vince started the year as he means to go on by reiterating his offer to voters of a second referendum and an exit from Brexit and saying that Lib Dem peers will work with Labour in the House of Lords to fight the EU withdrawal bill. But with the Lib Dems languishing at 7% in the polls, he's got his work cut out. Hi Vince, welcome to Romaniacs. Thank you and happy new year. How was your break? It was um, clearing mountains of paper. Um, <laughs> Getting together with my family. My younger son's just got married, so, you know, a lot of uh, family gatherings. And my lovely wife, Rachel, has a small holding in the New Forest, which is surrounded by um, wilds. And whenever I want to escape, I go there and uh, have a wonderful time. That sounds very restful. This is not restful. (laughs) (laughs) But as we enter the new year, are you feeling more or less confident of sort of stopping or modifying Brexit now than when you became leader? I'm more confident. Um, I think what we began to see at the end of last year was serious evidence of people on the Tory side particularly, I think, having serious doubts about all of this. I think there was a mood in the general election, and my party suffered from it, which was, um, well, you know, we've had the vote, uh, let the government get on with it, see the best they can get. Um, But as it became apparent that the kind of deal we're going to get is not good, you know, the divorce settlement was expensive and almost entirely dictated by the European Union. Um, as it's become clear that we're at best going to get a rather distant trading relationship um, of the kind which, say, Canada has or Ukraine, and there is no prospect of keeping uh, the good things of the European Union, um, I think an awful lot of people are beginning to have serious doubts about whether this project should be stopped. And we'll be talking later about sort of our priorities, our hopes for the year. I mean, where would you advise sort of Remainers to be to be devoted? Well, I think it's. I think it is actually a lot of it is being patient. I, I think what's happened a little bit. You know, we had a 
a string of big, you know, quite emotional demonstrations uh, around London in the summer and in Manchester and other places. Uh, but it's not that kind of campaign. It's it's a long fought out guerrilla campaign. We won't really know where the thing is heading probably till the early autumn. Um, the Lib Dems will continue to press the case, uh, not to use your language for a second referendum, but what we call a first referendum on the facts, <laughs> once we know what's happening, uh, that the public should have a choice as to whether they want to go ahead or an exit from Brexit. I think the momentum for that will build up in months' time. So it's a question of keeping on the job, continuing to make the case, but recognising this is quite a long, drawn-out battle. We'll be talking to Vince later throughout the show. In a minute, we'll round up all the Brexit developments that happened while everyone was away, subsisting on chocolate and brie. But first, a quick message from Naomi. If you're looking for a New Year's resolution that will really make a difference, forget the gym and give your support to Romaniacs on the crowdfunding platform Patreon instead. Pledge any amount from a couple of pounds a month upwards and we will send you smart Romaniacs t-shirts, bags and mugs. Details can be found on our Patreon page. You'll also be first to find out about our live shows when we announce them soon and you'll get reduced early bird ticket offers. Find out more at Romaniacs.com. And if you want to help us out right now, you could give us a star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps push us up their podcast chart and wins us new listeners. We started the year, in fact, ahead of the BBC's Brexit cast in the charts. Katja Adler, Laura Koonsberg, we're coming for you. Thanks, Naomi. Let's round up what happened while we were away. Starting in reverse order, it's like a top 10 countdown, with the revolt of Adonis. Former Labour Minister Andrew Adonis quit the government's National Infrastructure Commission just before New Year, saying in a blistering resignation letter that Brexit had caused a nervous breakdown in government and that Theresa May had become the voice of UKIP and the extreme nationalist right wing of her party. Adonis called the process a dangerous populist and nationalist spasm worthy of Donald Trump and urged Labour to support a second referendum or perhaps the first referendum on the facts. Peter, how significant is this? The Mail obviously dismissed it as good riddance to a Ramoning servant of Europe. Do you see what they did there? Ramoning. Very clever of them. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not so sure it's going to have a big impact, I'm afraid. Um, you know, you look at what happened just before Christmas uh, when Alan Milburn, former Labour figure, Gillian Shepherd, former Conservative figure, and others re- uh, resigned en masse from the government's social mobility uh, panel, you know, a good idea, uh, a good idea in itself, a good idea to have a cross-party platform, like the, likewise having an, uh, an organisation that looks on all the terrible infrastructure needs that we have and tries to do something about it. Um, it's a shame that these things don't get the attention they deserve, but we've had so many comings and goings, mostly goings in the last couple of months, that it's, you know, it's, it's, it must be hard for the public to keep up with this. And probably one has to say that Andrew Adonis wasn't one of the most well-known figures in, in, in the government. Well, I, um, he's on my wall. Oh, well, <laughs> and I'm sure teenagers across the land. Um, Naomi, there were people on the on the left and the sort of Brexit right painting Adonis as a remote elite figure, uh, despite the fact he's the son of a Cypriot immigrant who grew up in care from the age of eleven. Is is anyone who is in a position to be a leading Remainer automatically disqualified in some quarters as an elitist? Like, if you rule out all leading politicians, where are they meant to come from? Well, I think ideally we would get 
more plurality of voices fighting the Remain corner. Football managers, for instance, um, who know all too well about the benefits of freedom of movement of people. Um, and, uh, you know, yes, there, there was some criticism, um, particularly from um, certain parts of the left, about how Adonis um, resigned. And there was all sorts of talk about you know, him being uh, on an alpine ski slope and coming to this conclusion that he needed to to quit Theresa May's government. Um, I agree that that's probably not the best of optics. But what staggers and I think really depresses me is that it's the Leavers who are the real elitists. Um, you know, Nigel Farage, Rhys Mogg, Boris Johnson, Michael Gove. These are all highly privileged, public school educated um, white men who have spent their careers helping to fuel inequality um, and to help the rich get richer. Um, you know, let's not forget that a huge number of Brexiteers are on record as wanting to privatise the NHS. Um, people like Sir James Dyson, they don't care about, you know, the UK's Joe blogs when they up and move their factories to Malaysia. They all talk about defying the elite, but the fact is they are the elite. Um, so it's just a bit churlish, I think, to, to lump uh, brave Andrew Adonis in with that lot of levers. Well, I suppose it's like the way that the sort of, you know, Trump can, can sort of go golfing and have skyscrapers with his name on them and his own sort of pleasure palace in Florida and yet still be fighting the elites. It, it seems to be a kind of thing. You just say you're against the elites regardless. Um, Vincent, did you have you crossed paths with Andrew Adonis? What's, yeah, what do you quite make a of lot. Well, he's an interesting man because he is one of the relatively few people in British public life and politics who is comfortable working collaboratively with other parties. I mean, as you remember, we tried to do that in the coalition and got our fingers politically burned. But but he's a sort of somebody who does try to reach out. And the fact that he couldn't continue working with the current Conservative government speaks volumes, actually. I think the other point about his comments, which struck a chord with me, uh, and, and I think reflected a real insight into the way the government's working, is when he described the way that effectively all the energy has been sucked out of government by Brexit. There are so many problems that we, we have, you know, most topically the health service, but how do you make an industrial strategy work? How do you organise long-term care funding? How do you fund universities? All these things require a lot of energy and political commitment, uh, but it's all gone. Everything is channelled into this one project, and meantime, the country is, is just marking time and I think Andrew partly because he sits in that kind of key pivotal role on the infrastructure commission uh, observed this happening and it's it's good that he's uh, pointed this out because one criticism uh, you get from vocal remainers particularly from parts of Labour is that you know you're talking about Brexit all the time what about all these other issues but but the point is as you just said mm. that government's time that should be on these other issues is being spent on Brexit. So yes, and there's, no, and there's nothing coming forward. I mean, Theresa May, to, to give her credit, uh, before the last general election, had some really quite interesting ideas on reforming corporate governance, on, you know, trying to address the issue about social mobility and, social, and inequality. All of that's gone. I mean, there is no energy left. There is no interest in those subjects anymore. They've just dried up because all of her time and emotional energy is tied up with Brexit. And it's, it's having a very, very debilitating effect on the way we function as a country. Also over Christmas, Nick Clegg got a knighthood. I'm not saying that his appearance on Romaniacs was the decisive factor, <laughs> but I'm not saying it wasn't. Um, some people got very angry about this, didn't they? Um, and I suppose it, perhaps like Lord Adonis on the, on the ski slopes, people think, ah, you know, this is this typical kind of Remainers and the establishment. I mean, was it... I didn't quite 
understand the fuss. Not least because he was a good guest and we're very kind, very, very nice about our guests. But did you, did you understand the kind of outrage? Well, I think there's this, there's this general, you know, whenever anybody gets, who doesn't belong to the party that you vote for, gets some kind of a gong, everybody jumps up and down. But the, the thing, for me, it's a, it's a very cheap way to, to, to sort of reward people or to sort of throw something at people. Calling somebody sir whatever doesn't cost anything. I, I, is, am I right, Sir Vince? You don't actually get a salary just be, for being yes, a Yes, no, you don't get anything. I've had these it's, thrown at me. And it's, it's quite a nice thing to have so, thrown do, at you. Do you get, do you get travel expenses to the ceremony? No, absolutely no, nothing. No perks. Like the only perk is going to the Buckingham Palace and dressing up in your best togs and taking your grandchildren or whatever. And that's it. <laughs> Tim Shipman, the political reporter, argued that um, Farage should have been knighted on the basis that he's the most successful single-issue politician of recent years. Now, obviously, I had a rage spasm. But, um, I mean, does, it, d- does he have a point? Is that a reason to, to knight somebody who hangs out with fascists? Yeah, so we're going to be an honorary knighthood to Vladimir Putin then, maybe, yeah. on the grounds that he's a very prominent and successful in his own way politician. Uh, I, don't know, no, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't quibble with that, actually. Um, I think what I do quibble with is if you look at some of the political knighthoods recently, they're very, very, very obscure MPs. I mean, they're mostly... Tory Brexiteers, but actually I don't think that's why they're chosen. The rumour is that there were a group of MPs who were bullied into sitting on a committee overseeing the HS2 project, which involves going up and down Britain, listening to people complaining about having their back gardens (laughs) turned into railway lines. Uh, And in, in return for this chore... They were, they were promised a gong, and they've all got one. And if you look down the mm. list, there's some very, very obscure MPs. I mean, Nick Clegg is in a totally different universe mm. yeah. from, from them. I mean, I, I think that is what's interesting about it. Um, it. It looks like Theresa May doled out many more gongs to leavers. So um, amongst this list of, of people that listeners may not be so familiar with that um, Vince has just mentioned, you've got the chairman of the influential 1922 Backbench Committee, Graham Brady. You've got the vice chair of that committee, Cheryl Gillan. She's been made a dame. Uh, another member of that uh, group, Jeffrey Clifton Brown, was also knighted. Um, and Christopher Chope, who's a former minister and also back leave, was knighted too. Um, you know, even prominent Brexiteer, um, not known for his drumming ability, Ringo Starr got one. He's a fantastic drummer. Take that back. <laughs> <laughs> he is. It's not what John Nunn said. Um, so, uh, you know, seriously, I, I think that, you know, she's, she's a pretty weak prime minister um, and clearly needed to shore up support on the back benches. Um, and, and with Nick Clegg's gong being leaked early, it really distracted the narrative um, away from the truth. And that that's basically a two to one ratio in favour of, of uh, knighthoods for Brexiteers. So there were six um, knighthoods that went to parliamentarians this time. That's double uh, the number she gave out last year, which was just three. Um, and also knighted was um, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, who unusually for a Labour MP or indeed any MP refused to say which side um, he was backing in the referendum. He's the deputy speaker. I think he probably wants to be thought of as impartial on this. Yeah, that's probably a fair... And it probably, probably also fair. reflects the confusion in the Labour Party. <laughs> <laughs> Bring that point in. <laughs> now, the next story may feel like ancient history, but it's probably the most significant of the lot. The Tory backbench rebellion of December the 14th, way back when, when 11 Conservative MPs joined the opposition to vote for a legal guarantee of a parliamentary vote on the final Brexit deal. This was Theresa May's first defeat on major legislation and a big deal. You could gauge the significance of Dominic Greaves' amendment from the fury of the Brexit press and hardline Brexiteers alike. Nadine Doris... 
one of our great thinkers, called for deselections, and the mail went with the tone of an exasperated parent whose children have made a mess in the aisles of Waitrose. Proud of yourselves? <laughs> um, Vince, you know the kind of the workings of Parliament. Um, how did how did this? Do you think this defeat came about? Did the Tory? Well, I think it was quite a big deal for the people who rebelled. Um, it it may not make a great deal of difference in in the bigger scheme of things, but politics in Westminster and perhaps more generally is so tribal. Um, there is so much pressure, peer group pressure, to conform that for people to rebel in that very public way does require a certain amount of courage. I, I think what, what I do worry about, however, is we all cheered loudly when the result was announced, but I don't think any of us are any clearer as to what a meaningful vote actually means. I mean, if, if we're given the votes in nine months' time, do you accept the deal or do you send the government back to negotiate something else or do we crash out or is this a, a vote for a, a referendum? I don't know. It's, it's left hanging um, and that very, very important element of uncertainty now needs to be cleared up. Well, I, I mean, I suppose I felt the real significance or the real sort of cause for celebration on my butt was the, the fact that the, the, you know, the rebels were willing to kind of to take a stand and if they've done it this time... You know, may they do it again? Yes, well, More I important that, than I think there's a lot of force in that. But, I mean, but remember that about two thirds of Tory MPs voted to remain, as far mm, as we know, mm, mm. Uh, and there's only a tiny handful of them who were showing any fight. I was a bit worried that maybe that was our high watermark in terms of um, Tory rebels. We did lose a few of them on the day um, to the tactics uh, of the whips immediately before the vote. But I think, you know, if things continue to go really badly with ne Brexit negotiations on trade, maybe some of the abstainers could be persuaded over to rebel ranks. Um, I think some of them will be beginning to think about their own seats and realising that as the Brexit party, uh, the Conservatives are going to be in a pretty weak position to fight future elections. I just wonder whether that whole tactic, you know, that was happening in the weeks before Christmas of trying to sort of shame the rebels, you know, backfired and made them more like they go, OK, so this is, you know, because this is a common psychological thing. It's just like they go, OK, if that's what you say I am, that's what I'm going to be. And sort of with pride and they really people we've been disappointed with for months you know, really came out I, swinging. I, I think the, the big problem for the pro-Brexit pre press is that having built up Farage and so on as these rebels in a positive sense, these mavericks, these guys who are kicking against the system, it's very hard then to kick down on another group of people who are rebelling against the system in a different way. It, 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 because having created this idea that rebels are a good thing, it's very hard to, to make the sort of handbrake turn and say that there are wicked and evil traitors. It's, it, it doesn't work, and, uh, as they found out, I think. As he said, that was probably the most important, but of course it wasn't, because finally we have blue passports. <laughs> the government announced them just before Christmas, the Brexit press went into paroxysms of joy, and the Tory rebellion was briefly forgotten. This seems like sort of Brexit symbolism at its silliest. Is the government just sort of throwing a bone to leave voters, that, you know, a nice bit of optics, because everything else is, is going less well? It's, it's a bit like um, the, 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 the gongs, you know, that if this is what keeps a few Brexiteers happy, handing them some gongs or giving them a blue passport, passport instead of their burgundy passport, fine, give it, that's what keeps them happy. Maybe there's an element of that. 
I, I think there's a, a deeper thing here, actually. I mean, it's not as they are blue blast bulbs. I got mine out. It is almost black. But anyway, putting that pedantic point aside, I think what it tells us is, is it was actually the worst aspects of the Brexit campaign. I mean, there are some arguments you can make on the Brexit side, but this was all about nostalgia. It was older people feeling nostalgic for the great days of the past when we had an empire and the world was pink and you know Britain was number one and number two in the world and we had our own special little passport. It's, it, that's a, a terrible appeal to that generation, my generation, mm. uh, who voted heavily to, to leave. Uh, and it tells us an awful lot about the underlying psychology of what Brexit appealed to. Well, there's a, there's a phenomenon that people talk about in, uh, in sort of TV criticism of the bad fan. So the fan that, say, is really into Breaking Bad, but they think that's because Walter White is a, is a badass, you know, and a role model, as opposed to a kind of, like, tragic and sort of somewhat horrific figure. And I feel like a lot of, there's a lot of kind of bad fans of Britain. Mm. And that patriotism, if you're going to be patriotic and make a big deal of patriotism, talk about you know, deep values, things that bind us. The idea that, that this, lots of the time this sort of silly symbolism, divisive gestures, you know, this kind of sort of, this sort of alienating either ugly or trivial side, it, it's very unconvincing. I'm not averse to patriotic feeling, but it just seems like it's always the tawdriest variety. Yeah, we had a high point, didn't we, with the Olympic Games. Mm. That's in a way brought out the best of patriotism, that this is the worst and silliest. I'm interested in what you're saying about the, the generational thing, that, mm. that it's essentially to appeal to the, the old and nostalgic. We asked uh, Nick Clegg about this as well, that um, to, put it, to put, it, uh, put it delicately, as he does, that uh, actuarially, actuarially we've peaked past peak Brexit, that older voters tended to vote for Brexit, they won't be around forever, younger people voted to stay. The counter-argument is maybe those young people will turn brexit as they get middle-aged. What's your view on this? Uh, you know, are we, are we basically... Have we seen peak Brexit vote, the peak of that kind of attitude? No, I, I don't think we have. I mean, if leave does happen, and I guess the probability is it will, however much we may regret it, uh, I think uh, one of the key reasons, actually, for having a referendum on the final outcome is that if we don't, you'll have a, a, a large and growing number of younger people who will feel permanently resentful that this has been imposed on them. And when things turn bad, as they probably will in different ways in the years ahead, we'll have this lingering uh, resentment. And that's why I think it is important to have a cathartic final decision on the matter. I don't really care what colour my passport is, but you can renew your passport early and therefore have a burgundy one long after we've left the EU. Vince, I'm afraid I must press you on a very important question. Under a Lib Dem government, what colour would passports be? Well, under a Lib Dem government, you'd have liberal principles and people would have a choice. Yeah, yeah, it'd, be, it'd be madness. Uh, it'd be like a rainbow. Well, <laughs> why, why not have a rainbow passport? Yeah. Well, you can have different colours for your iPhone cover. Why not? For yes, exactly. Yeah. That's the right liberal spirit. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad we nailed you down on that one. And we've been hearing from throughout the show, Lib Dem leader Sir Vince Cable is our special guest today. Vince, you took charge of a, a kind of fairly reduced party. You're down to 12 MPs, which is up from 2015, but massively down from 2010 when you had 57. You, like you were saying earlier, that the, the election results, you said, suggested that people, that Brexit was maybe not, therefore, the sort of top priority. But I, I know a lot of friends were going, they were expecting to see Lib Dems make gains based on that, you know, issue alone. 
was that what you were expecting? Was the well, I, we party? could argue it was a missed opportunity, but mm. it happened. You know, the past is the past. I wasn't in Parliament at the time. Mm. My own constituency proved to be a little oasis of Lib Dem landslide. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, no, I, th- I think when I look at the pluses and minuses of the balance sheet that I've inherited, I mean, on the pluses side, we do have a massively energised, large membership, predominantly young. I mean, the average new joiner is in their 20s, actually. Um, I find I go around universities, which were traditionally thought of as a bit of a danger area for Lib Dems, get a massively positive reception. Um, I think there is an opportunity arising from the polarisation of the two major parties, particularly on the Labour side. There's, a, I think, a, a, a crisis that hasn't yet happened. So I think the opportunity is great, but we do start from um, a low base. I'm, I'm painfully aware of that. And it is going to take months and years of rebuilding to get us back into the centre of the political universe. And were you surprised by, I suppose, the success of, 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 sort of Labour's all things to all people kind of triangulation to the extent that I think some, like a third of Labour voters or re, re, pro-Remain Labour voters think that uh, Labour anti-Brexit... Yes, no, they, were, they, they, they had a very good campaign and everybody underestimated them. Everybody underestimated Corbyn personally, who is, you know, he's obviously quite experienced in a political scrap. I mean, he's been involved in ideological battles for 40 years and as a debater and arguer, he was rather more authentic and effective than Theresa May in the event. So, so you know, we didn't underestimate them. Everybody did. But I think um, what will emerge over time is that many of of those younger people who voted Labour thinking they were the anti-Brexit party will now have realised that actually they're totally complicit in it. At every stage, they've worked with the government to not just... um, accelerate the Brexit process but to get us out of the single market to get us out of the customs union that's got Labour all over it Uh, and I think that generation of people will rethink their loyalties. You you said that when you go to universities you're now getting a much better reception than Liberal Mm. Democrats got maybe Mm. at at sort of peak tuition fees uh, time but you know we do know that younger voters are still very much supportive of Labour. What, where, where do you think this tipping point is going to be when they're going to finally wake up and realise that actually, yes, this is a party that's doing the government's bidding rather than doing effective opposition and, and trying to stop mm. Brexit? I mean, they're, you know, they're the most remain of cohorts. What, what, well, that what penny hasn't yet do? dropped with a lot of them. And, you know, to, to give them credit, I mean, Keir Starmer in particular has been rather clever in fudging this issue and um, saying different things to different audiences. But I think there's a lot of duty on us as a party and indeed us around the table to make the point that on the biggest issue of our lifetime, the main opposition party has just sat on the fence and refused to commit itself. And I think that will gradually take its toll. I think also as time goes on, and I think this parliament will be much longer than the Labour Party anticipate, you you get the impression from Jeremy Corbyn that it's one more heave and we're into Downing Street. I really don't think so. I think four years, five years, parliament is perfectly possible. I think over that period, the, the, the weaknesses in their basic position where you have a 
essentially a social democratic party with a Marxist leadership. I mean, that's just so absurd and, and so um, unconvincing that I think their support will start to fracture with time. Mm. I mean, Labour will often sort of trot out the will of the people stuff. How do you deal with that? Um, it, you know, is, is that the hardest argument uh, to rebut as the only openly anti-Brexit party? Uh, well, it is. a. I go some way towards accepting that the last debate, the, the, the referendum happened. You know, I, I, there are some people on the Remain side who say it was all a fraud and people misled and we need to rerun it for that reason. I don't go along with that. I take the view it has happened. It is reality. But the problem is that there's a lot of difference between voting in principle to leave the European Union and starting the negotiating process and approving the end product. And that's why I and the party argue very strongly for a, a public vote on the outcome, on the negotiated solution, whatever it turns out to be. So I don't think we should disrespect people who voted in the, the last referendum, but nonetheless, that's the way the whole process has started with a popular vote. And if we're going to conclude it, that's the way it's got to happen. Obviously, you got squeezed in the uh, most recent election uh, by the two main parties. And there's both the sort of, you know, with the, the right dominating the Conservatives and the left dominating Labour, um, they're creating this idea that liberal is some kind of a swear word. It's a bad mm. thing to be a liberal, a bad, bad thing to be centrist. We've been called centrist, Peter. We have. We've been called centrist. Isn't that mm. shocking? Um, how, how are we going to... Um, reclaim liberal uh, in the broadest possible sense as a positive thing, as a positive force? Well, I think in philosophical terms that is a massively big and difficult issue because you would normally assume that if the two parties are going to the extremes, this would create a lot of space in the middle for the Lib Dems to occupy. But I think what's tended to happen is people have become more, as it were, frightened they're frightened of the other lot getting in, and so you revert to the, the tribe. Uh, and actually, it's, it's in a way in, accelerated this process of two extremes. And we've got to make the case that that's not a sensible place to be. I mean, you're also right that one of the consequences of the financial crisis and its aftermath over the last 10 years is that kind of liberal values, even social democratic values, will become a bit discredited. You know, they, these are the people who are running the country after all, and it got into a terrible mess. We need to try something else. So, you know, the hard right, the hard left. And I think we need to make the reasoned case that actually in those traditions, there are the solutions to the problems that we have. We need a competently run economy, but we also need to be much more aware of inequalities and the harshness of a life with very little labour protection. I mean, these are the things which you know I want my party to be at the centre of. And could, can you see uh, your party becoming the party of openness to the world, liberal in the, in the classical sense? Well, you know, we are. The party and, of free trade, the party yes. that isn't in a panic about... Uh, immigration or whatever is is that a viable political project in Britain to to be, to be open in that sense? Yes, it is, and that's where we I, I like to think we are and should be. Um, I mean, there, I think unlike in the United States, where you've got much more, uh, the argument is much more. Uh, 
polarised and you have the, the, the nationalists led by Trump and Bannon and people of this kind versus more liberal people. In, in this country, it's a bit more muddled because you have this strange kind of mixture of ideas coming out of this government that, that they, they don't want integration with Europe because of immigrants and because it's all too close. But at the same time, they want to have more free trade with the Pacific. You know, I mean, it's, all, <laughs> it's just a sort of slightly bizarre. I mean, if you want to be an economic nationalist, put the barriers up. You, know, you don't have this weird halfway house. Mm. And, and the Labour Party, similarly, I think in a slightly odd position that's you know it's socialism in one country but but wrapped up in a kind of internationalist language and it, it is a confusing debate but to answer your question directly i do want us to be the liberal party which embraces openness with trade um, and people you mentioned trump and there's putin and there's you know various other nationalist uh, tides rising in other parts of the world there are some pundits who say well this is just you know history has these great big tides and there's a the, the tide of nationalism is now unstoppable are you that pessimistic no no i i, I don't think so and i think history never quite repeats itself and this this isn't the 1930s but partly because nation states no longer have the the capacities they did in you know the interwar period we are much more integrated even in this kind of nationalistic mood um you know capitalism has is is a much more integrating force and it's happening through uh, internet connections through supply chains of companies through tourism i mean in all kind of ways the world is much more bound together than it was in 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 that period so i think the idea of the world pulling apart in quite the way that it did in the mid 1930s is highly unlikely but you know you can't discount some idiot um, pressing a button somewhere and reversing the whole process in a terrible way. We won't press you on who you think that idiot might be. <laughs> <laughs> we he, he, could, he could be found on Twitter.com. Right. <laughs> um, and like we said, we had Nick Clegg on the show last time. Um, in his book, he kind of makes the proposal that in order to, one of the most effective ways to stop Brexit is if you want to pressure MPs is to join the Labour or Conservative parties. And obviously, as the leader of the Lib Democrats, did you, how did you react to that modest proposal? Well, I didn't think it was terribly helpful, and I don't actually think it's, it's logical, really. Um, I mean, if you join the modern-day Conservative Party, um, you join a party which, in the words of Stephen Dorrell, who former health secretary, had a respected Tory, you're joining a party that, as he puts it, is comfortable in its Brexit skin. So why would you want to join it and be uncomfortable and be a, a stone in, in, in the shoe? Um, so I don't think that's good for the individual, and it's not going to fundamentally change the Tory party. Um, the Labour Party is slightly trickier because um, infiltration has proved to be quite an effective tool for people on the hard left, and you could argue that it could work in reverse. Um, but no, I, th I think that the problem is that unless we have a very strong force of the kind that my party represents, people will just assume that the only future is in the two extremes. And if you migrate into those parties, you just reinforce that tendency. Because, I mean, we talk about sort of extremes, you can talk about obviously in, in a left-right sense, but we've also got the kind of this tension between leave and remain that the, the sort of the, the discourse generally has become quite sort of poisonous, and I would say less. I don't know, sometimes when I think of kind of 
liberal values, centrist values. That's not necessarily even attached to particular policies, but it's a kind of way of talking that you can uh, assume uh, good faith on the part of your opponents, that perhaps you can sort of collaborate. And it seems to become a lot more um, sort of fractured. So however the Brexit process plays out, what can people do do to try and kind of restore a certain kind of, uh, I don't know, decency or reasonableness to the political debate? Well, in my modest way, I try to do that. I mean, I think simply shouting people down, um, name-calling, the use of slogans isn't very helpful. I think it's it's quite... uh, One of the things I quite enjoy doing, actually, is getting on the radio, the television with um, Mr. Rees-Morg or Mr. Farage and trying to have a proper conversation with them and demonstrating that it is possible to have a sensible conversation and not a shouting match. And I think that that's something we should all be trying to do. But I think that the deeper point you're making is that we have a different kind of dividing line in politics. The, the, the people on the left would say a different dialectic. I mean, it used to be kind of right-left in an old-fashioned way. You were either pro-free enterprise and the private sector and low taxes versus nationalisation and, and the rest – but now it's 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 different. It's about openness to trade, to migration, to ideas, versus a very closed, inward-looking uh, approach to life. And it's it, it, the dividing line is different and confusing. Um, but um, uh, you know, I like to think that you know my party has a great future, both in the centre of the traditional type of dividing line, but also as a party that is leading in the debate around openness. And you said that if Remain loses, if there's another referendum um, that is lost, that that puts the issue to bed. And so sort of projecting forward, if we do, um, you know, crash out, if we do leave with or without a deal, where does that leave kind of pro-Europeans? I'm not a pro-European party like yours, sort of if that particular kind of, you know, battle has been lost or this particular era of British history is, is, is over, what does it mean to be sort of pro-European post-Brexit? Well, I don't think that... the. I, th- I think one of the things that has happened in the last few weeks is that the, the kind of extreme crashing out scenario is less, much less likely. Mm. Um, I think it's much more likely that we're going to finish up with what, you know, before all this started, everybody would have thought was a pretty bad deal, actually, in which we pay lots of money and finish up with a very weak trading relationship that doesn't cover services, for example, probably excludes the city. Um, and, and, it's you know, it's a pretty bad bargain. Um, and that is what I think the final choice should be about. Do you want to accept that or do you want an exit from Brexit and to stay within the European Union? But if hypothetically... Um, we were to lose that argument um, and the people were to say, OK, well, you know, that's what the government's got. That's what we'll settle for. Um, I, I, I think there, there still is a continuing argument for Britain being European because I think what is going to happen increasingly in Europe is you're going to get a, a kind of, I wouldn't say a hierarchy, but, but different, that there will be an inner core of Eurozone countries and around that another group you know the norways uh, the switzerlands which are very well integrated but not fully and then another group um, east europeans and others who want to be associated with the european union but aren't quite in it 
And I think it's very important that we remain close to that argument. And there are many, many things that Europe does that we will want to be associated with, whether it's around security cooperation, environmental issues and things of that kind. So there will be a European future. Uh, and it may well be that after some years, people will want to reopen the whole issue of membership again. Well, yes. I mean, yeah, nothing seems to be put to bed for, you know, forever. And given what we talked about earlier of a younger generation that's just being bypassed, I mean, that that's not going to be forgotten. Yeah. And let's not forget, you know, after the, the referendum in the 70s, the right didn't give up and they carried on for 40 years, banging the drum and making the case for taking us out of Europe. And I'm afraid that the younger generation would, would in that horrible instance, just have to pick up... And it would be a lot less than 40 years. With luck, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Vince. Finally, one thing that was very clear from Nick Clegg's appearance on the last show is that Brexiters have their eyes on the prize, hard, soft or medium. Any Brexit will do for them because once we're out of the EU, it's not the end of the story for them, but the beginning. So what prize should we have our eyes on? What are Romaniac's New Year's resolutions for 2018? Peter, what are you looking forward to this year? What's well, your hope? What I'm hoping, as Vince Cable was saying earlier, is that as it becomes clearer and clearer that we're not going to get anything that's really acceptable out of the Brexit deal, we're going to be paying all this money, we're going to have very limited access on trade, it's going to be pretty lousy. I'm hoping that the public starts to recognise this and therefore that the majority of pro-Remain Tory MPs begins to wake up and realise this uh, and therefore that Theresa May... Uh, has to pay more attention to them. And the particular way I'd like her to pay attention uh, to them is by putting forward a bill to promise a second referendum or a referendum on the facts, as Sir Vince has called it. Um, you know, here's my scenario. I'd like to maybe test this on Sir Vince to see if it sounds um, realistic. So the government comes back from Brussels with uh, a final deal and says, all right, Parliament, we suppose, will have to have a vote on it. Parliament rejects it, in, in my scenario, uh, for various reasons. You know, some of the Brexit, hard Brexiteers say it's not generous enough or, or whatever. Um, and the government says, all right, now that Parliament's rejected it, we'll have a referendum. Uh, and the two, and the, to, to simplify the question so that you don't have a sort of complicated multi-part referendum, the question will be something like, now that Parliament has rejected the deal, what should we do about it? Should we crash out of the EU with no deal or should we stay in the EU? That's tempting fate, uh, obviously, because, you know, people might be tempted to say, uh, screw you and, 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 and vote against it. But I'm hoping that um, by then the mood will have changed in the public and the realisation will actually be that staying is better than uh, the, the, the pretty so-so deal that we've been offered. Does that sound even remotely uh, realistic to you? Yeah, no, I think it does sound plausible. I, I think there, is a, there are potentially more interesting and exciting outcomes. Well, one is that this does actually split the Tory party in the way that they were split in the middle of the 19th century of free trade. Um, Having recently read about Sir Robert Peel again, I'd forgotten all about him as a historical figure to that rather nice uh, television series on Victoria. But, um, but it does remind us that political parties can implode, can um, schism, and it's quite possible that we could finish up um, in a few months' time with an agreement that is far too close to Europe for the hardliners, but not close enough for the Remainers and they just can't handle it anymore and we, we do have an explosion. Could happen. 
So we could get to something like the FDP in Germany, the Free Democrats, the sort of liberal conservatives. Indeed, I I wouldn't say that's probable, but I wouldn't discount it. And the the very shrewd comments that were made a few weeks ago by Michael Heseltine on all of this and the absolute, you know, pathological, hate-filled reaction to it from the Tory right, I think spoke volume about what's happening internally within their operation. Interesting times. Well, I do wonder whether you look at, say, what's happening with the Republicans and the the never-Trump Republicans have gone from thinking that there should be some kind of sort of split to actually thinking maybe the whole party has just been overtaken and ruined and you've got these sort of heartbroken ideological conservatives, you know, like Bill Crystal and David Frum. And I do wonder what it's like if you are a more... Um, you, if you're not a kind of nativist, Brexiteer conservative, what you think is happening to your party? I, I know splits are really, like you said, they're very, a lot has to happen before yes, you split, I mean, but it yeah. must be quite weird being in that party when you consider... Ditto if you're a Blairite Labour MP at the moment. <clears throat> I think the, the, I'm guessing that we have the big spectre of the SDP hanging over us. You know, yes. if you go off in, and start a new party, you fail. What you have to do is get the others to go. Mm. And you keep the party. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. keep the brand. You mm. keep the headquarters. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah. As somebody was part of that <laughs> civil war. I remember <laughs> it very acutely. Yeah. Do we think, therefore, that... Uh, first referendum on the facts, second referendum, uh, call it what you want, uh, is more likely than a general election this year um, or necessarily... Certainly more likely than a general election. I think the chances of an early general election are quite remote, actually. Um, I'd say 18 months, two years, once all of this is over, for better or worse, uh, it's quite possible the Tories will then try rejuvenation and a fresh election. But happening this year, I can't see it. Naomi, what's your prize for 2018? Obviously, you know, in, in a similar vein to the discussion that we've just had, since the referendum, we have seen a realignment of politics. Um, and it hasn't been a realignment of politicians or of parties, but of voters. Uh, and the Conservatives really now are the Brexit party. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I suspect lots of their members um, uh, and, and certainly a lot of the politicians will be thinking... As, as you've just said, you know, is this really the kind of party that I want to be saddled to? And I think Remainers must frame the Conservatives as the Brexit party because it's true. Now, I'm a Liberal Democrat, um, but I do realise that the majority of Remainers are currently Labour voters. Um, and Remainers and Remaniacs, uh, like us, aren't powerless. So, you know, what I want us to do in 2018 is to show support to the Conservative rebels. Um, and I really want Labour to fall in line um, and uh, come out definitively as an anti-Brexit party. And if they don't, I want, you know, Remainers to be prepared to abandon Labour if Labour abandons them. You know, Remainers core to Labour's success. Well, for our former guest, Mike Hind, was sort of got quite cross on Twitter over Christmas and saying that the, you know, with people criticising Labour and saying that the priority, if you want to stop Brexit, is focus on the Tories, you know, don't don't slag off Labour. And I appreciate I'm not one of those kind of extreme, you know, that no Remainer in good conscience can vote Labour, being a Labour voter and a Remainer. Um, But I do think that, you know, that pressure, the kind of criticism which counts as friendly pressure, and it's like, I'm on your side, I'm in your party, but I would really, really like you to move in this direction, is not the same as saying oh, they're all as bad as, as bad as each other. And it, it feels to me that kind of some kind of, without that pressure, 
there is no reason they're ever going to get off the fence. People don't choose to get off no. the fence unless they have to be kind of pushed. Yeah. It would be good if all the students who came out and all the young people who voted for, for Corbyn um, used a bit of the, the, the attention that they're getting, both in the Labour Party and in the media, to actually get the message home to Corbyn that actually we don't want you to take us out of the EU. Yeah, because otherwise I think you can feel a little sort of taken for granted. I mean, all parties take part of their base for granted, don't they? Um, But it seems like a rather large part of the Labour voters at the moment. Finally, my priority is to draw the different threads together into a coherent anti-Brexit movement um, with, (laughs) fingers crossed, a minimum of sort of party politics and infighting. We have a lot of people, a lot of high-profile figures, we don't have a movement. And while Labour, as we said, is on the fence, the main contenders to lead the movement... Sort of all, all have baggage from previous governments. Now, what I don't want, quite unusually for a journalist, is to start a new centrist party <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> but I would like to see some of the people we sort of we've had on the show, and all of whom have you know, done sort of good work and had great ideas, sort of coming together in a more effective way. And I've really been thinking a lot about this question of of who would lead it. And there was talk of um, Andrew Adonis, for example, emerging mm. as a leader. I mean, possibly just like Christmas season excitement, but. Because we don't have, you know who the Leave leaders are. You may not like them, but you sort of know who they are. And, I mean, are there, Vince, are there real sort of practical reasons why this is not happening? Because there are just too many, there is just no way to get Labour, Lib Dems, Conservative Remainers together. I think you're underestimating the extent to which there is quite a lot of day-to-day dialogue and cooperation. Uh, And Chukaramuna set up a group initially Mm. with me and and others. Joe Swinson on our side now sits on it. It's it's an entirely open group. Uh, with Labour and Tories working together tactically to, you know, on suitable amendments. Uh, the same thing is happening in the House of Lords. There is quite a lot of this day-to-day cooperation, goodwill, um, uh, people you know, with a common anti-Brexit cause. I mean, that's, that's happening. But I think it, there's a big jump from that to talking about new parties. And the problem yeah. with new parties, of course, is the first-past-the-post system. Yeah. It's not a, oh, I don't, I don't nothing want to do party. with individuals. Yeah. Um, and my party, I, I hope, will um, break through. But, but we, we're struggling against that problem. But, but, but I think if you're talking about a common approach to fighting Brexit, the foundations are already there. I think the only qualification I have is that when it comes to the wider campaigning in the country, it's a little bit like, you know, there is a bit of the People's Republic of Judea and the Judea's People's Republic, different factions. But as I understand it, they are already now coming together and working as a team, which is what we have to have. Well, I know there's a lot of great people both in in sort of uh, Parliament and outside, and there's Mm. there's sort of various organisations, various cross-party groups. But in the way that, I mean, I can't stand how often... Farage is on the BBC, but I think mm. there's, a, there's a reason for that, which is they go, we need the pro-Brexit voice. Mm. And I just Farage is sort of always in reception, uh, <laughs> <laughs> waiting for someone to ask him into the studio. It's him or Alan Partridge, really, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> you know, there just aren't that many, you know, there just aren't that many people. So everybody knows, so it's, oh, right, him. Mm. And I wonder, do we, it feels like there is no, if you just want to go, okay, who are we going to get to talk about from it? It could be you. It could be Chukaramuna. Yeah. It could it could be it could be Nick Clegg. It could be Gina Miller. There seem to be so many people, and I wonder whether that is a. Um, I mean, do you think that's a strength or a weakness? The fact that there isn't kind of 
a leader per se? Oh, I think it's a strength. Um, I mean, I get quite a lot of exposure mm. on our Lib Dem approach. Uh, I think it's good that Chukramuna and one or two of the Tories, like Ken Clark and Heseltine, and, of course, yeah. uh, get, get out there. No, I, th- I think the cross-party approach, the, the strength in depth rather than just a single loud individual is actually right. Mm. I mean, Liberals don't tend to sort of defer to a great leader um, mm. in, in quite the same way as people perhaps... Um, with, with, with other great leader, I don't, I don't want a Stalin, <laughs> Dear leader. Like a Remainer Stalin. <laughs> um, but, but you said that, that um, Andrew Donis has sort of emerged as a potential charismatic leader um, for the Remain cause. I, I, I don't think it should be him um, because he is a member of the House of Lords, and I don't think that is what the Remain cause needs right now. Um, uh, I did actually have a little cry on New Year's Day um, because I was rewatching Charles Kennedy's um, speech to the Liberal Democrat Conference in 2013 on Europe, um, and he was absolutely marvelous. And I would hope that anyone who does want to put themselves forward as a charismatic leader for Remain would have a little watch of that and try and channel a bit of him because he he really was incredibly passionate. And uh, not a day goes by that I don't wish that he was still around to help us um, make the case for Europe. Uh, I think that, you know, there are there are other great people like Sadiq Khan, um, Heidi Alexander, who we've had on this podcast before. Um, We often herald Ruth Davidson as, um, you know, the acceptable face of conservatism to many of us. But again, they're they're kind of... They're tied up, aren't they? Yeah. You know, Sadiq Khan and Ruth Davidson particularly, you know, they've got these kind of busy things to do. Other jobs. Other jobs to do. Um, so it's, there is that sort of breadth. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I have been talked out of the, the need for, you know, a sort of figurehead. And maybe the fact that you can actually name off the top of your head sort of a dozen really strong Remain voices is good. Maybe this is as much of a kind of chimera as the centrist party. You know, it's like it's it's not really the solution that we need. It just needs every 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 leading voice who gets who gets a turn at the microphone from Sir Vince to Sadiq Khan to Ruth Davidson. Keep keep plugging away. Yeah, strength in numbers. Wonderful. That's the end of our show for this week. Many thanks to Sir Vince Cable for joining us this week. What's on top of your to do list? Uh, top of my to do list is get, getting our party back at the centre of political life and making sure this year that. Brexit doesn't happen. Yeah, I've got two big to-dos. Yay! <laughs> That's good. Also laundry. <laughs> and thanks as well to Naomi Smith and Peter Collins. Remember, you can hear the show again and find all of our past shows via our website, Romaniacs.com. We'll be back next week with more finely tuned, handmade artisan Ramoning. In the meantime, here's the return of our famous Euro-friendly sign-offs, this time from our pool of rock and roll Romaniacs. Here's Glenn Johansson of Echo Belly with a bit of Swedish. Om du tror att Brexit kommer att göra ditt liv bättre så har jag en fjord och kan sälja dig. And of course we've got our fantastic theme tune Demon is a Monster from Corner Shop available now on all download stores and Spotify while we read out a roll call of our beloved Patreon supporters. See you next week. It's thanks from me to Sarah Moran, Judith Lee, Milan Joshi, Deborah Brock, Andy Hunter, Ed Beveridge, cheers to you, Babum, Sean Bamforth and Colin Gordon. And many thanks from me to Lee Hebblethwaite, Andrew Phillips, Mandy Hayward, David Tingle, Neil Uren, Christopher Turk, Donatella Landy and Melissa Johnson. And a big Romaniac shout out to Adam Shamali, Jonathan Evans, Alex Petmezas, hard-boiled thriller writer R.W. Savage, William Clements, Jeremy Wood, James Christopher and Harvey Washbrook. See you all next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Peter Collins. The producers were Andrew Harrison and me, Matt Hall, and Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.
Thank you.